Greetings programs, it's your old buddy Ingrid Burn all here. Back once again on the RPG mainframe, this is Hank from Fernail, podcast made to last and all that good stuff. Welcome back everybody. We're looking at mainframe episode 62 right here. And uh, yeah, man, it's, uh, wow. So uh, holler out to everybody. As of this recording, it's uh, day seven of our lock-in. So, you know, we're getting a little bit crazy, but we're starting to get a routine with it. You know what I mean? You got to do your exercises every day. You got to stay healthy and stay sane and uh, stay safe and uh, stay inside till this whole thing blows over. So that's what we've been doing. But that doesn't mean that this hobby is uh, showing any signs of stopping. If, if there are really any, any hobbies or uh, sort of lifestyles that are somewhat bulletproof to this entire global situation. <laughs> it have to be the RPG life. So here we are looking at mainframe 62. Now we've got a pretty beefy topic today. And really, uh, almost all of today's podcast is coming straight from you guys, straight from the Patreon and from the sort of um, slow yet endless trickle of messages uh, that come through Facebook for me that uh, I always enjoy you know, answering every morning. And that's where it's coming from today. This whole thing is kind of like reader-driven. That's uh, mail, uh, uh, Mainframe 62. But before we get into the main uh, meaty topic for today, I think it's time to take a look into the dark spaces down in the basement of uh, Runehammer here. We're going to go down and we're going to... Uh, what is what is all this stuff here? Let's see. Okay, what is all this? Here we go. Uh, yeah, right here. Oh, there we go. The mailbag. Mailbag day, mailbag day. Hey, 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 it's mailbag day. Let's go see what's in the mail today, because it's a mailbag day. Mailbag day, mailbag day. Now we ought to do like an Elvis edition. Okay, so mailbag today here on Mainframe 62. Uh, Always sort of questions and comments coming in in different quantities and intensities. (laughs) But some sort of stand out as others as maybe being uh, something that that everybody can kind of benefit from rather than just an individual question or sort of a story. But a strange trend, not strange, but an interesting trend has occurred in the past, say, month or so that I just had to comment on. So it isn't one specific piece of mail that came into the mailbag, but there have been way more game reports than there there have been sort of, you know, questions and can you help me with some creative stumbling blocks. Now, I'm not sure why that is, but a game report being like, hey, Hankrin, we just played last night and we were, you know, playing the Minotaur Bridge and we did this and we did that. It was awesome. And here's what happened. And here's the outcome. Those are awesome to hear always to hear like, you know, how content makes it to the table. But for strange reasons that I have no way of understanding, those have been really, really common throughout the month of February and March, months of February and March. And maybe it's because, you know, folks are staying in and they're playing online or they're playing on Skype or whatever. And uh, so it's not a matter of them pushing themselves uh, every week to create, you know, the craziest next game session, but more so just sort of uh, holding on to the social bonds that make their groups and, and playing in a, in a little bit more of a relaxed way. Now, all of these are just sort of my not really provable responses to all these game reports, but that's kind of what I sense. I sense that the games are all still going, but 
for people who normally play in person, who are new to playing online, it really isn't about assembling cool looking maps or doing a lot of tokens or like crazy sound design or any of this kind of stuff. It's more just a, we need to see each other's faces every week, you know? And so we'll use the tools that we have. And I have to say, thank goodness for video chat and for FaceTime and all that kind of stuff in, in times like these. And it changes the tone of the game a little bit. And I think that's what I wanted to comment on as far as mailbag goes. It's an interesting commentary, you know, like exactly what really is the guts of what we're doing? You know, is it just seeing each other's faces every week or, or really is it about, you know, the wow factor and prep and sound design and visual design, terrain building and mechanic building um, and content building and storytelling? And obviously it's a little bit of both, but it's interesting how that sort of needle is going to swing to one side or the other, depending on sort of the social atmosphere of all of our home cultures. And I know that we have listeners from all over the world. And so all of you are experiencing different versions of modern times. Um, but from what, from where I sit, uh, being on the sort of receiving end of all these game reports, there's a little bit different tone and it's a tone of, you know, using online tools to stick together, not so much to push campaigns forward. And I find that freaking awesome. <laughs> so that was just the first thing I wanted to comment on from the mailbag. Now, the second one that came up in the mailbag is a perennial question in RPGs. And we're going to go from the, the sublime and the vague, which I just went into, right all the way down to the mechanical and the specific. And this is the one about, hey, Hankrin, how do I run an army or a horde or a giant swarm of bad guys who are coming for my players? You know, And then there are so many ideas. And a lot of them uh, circle around inventing a new set of dice mechanics or number mechanics that can manage these large quantities of enemies. Okay, so the classic one is the like horde of skeletons, like this sort of skeleton army. We've all done it. If you haven't done it in your game, it's just that blows my mind. But like, so do I track each one with one hit point? Do I, do I use a quantity sort of outcome instead of damage outcomes? Do I use a whole new set of dice that, that simulates something like a, a war game or like Stratego? Like, how do I handle a, a war situation against like a group of, of heroes? How do I do this? So if you guys, uh, you know, are familiar with Lord of the Rings, you know that this happens. You know, there's like 10 heroes who stand against, you know, maybe a thousand bad guys and they just have this really fortified position so they can hold this position. And this even happens in, in real life, too, in, in certain situations. Actually, you could even cite the Alamo as one of these occasions. Is like massively overwhelming numbers can be held at bay by a group of heroes who are well fortified. And how do you handle this in your game? Because you want this to happen in your game. If it's in Tolkien, it needs to happen in your game, right? And so how do you do it? And so uh, being on the receiving end of all these messages and questions about playing hordes, I see a lot of different versions of how people want to handle it. And I almost always give them the same response. And it's a bit of a, as I usually describe it, a kick in the head, right? When I give this response, um, a lot of my responses to these questions are so minimalistic and so binary in nature. I think people are just like, what? <laughs> because remember, I'm always playing to my own, you know, needing to be able to remember things to run them effectively. So it needs to be simple enough for me to just memorize it. And you guys probably know what my answer is going to be is I basically just run my horde as a time constraint. And if you have a fighter who has a, you know, battle axe and is raging and has multiple actions per turn and all this kind of stuff, 
all you do is you have him successfully hold them at bay. You don't count how many skeletons are. Let's just start with that. You do not count how many orcs there are attacking Helm's Deep. That is not fun. There are almost countless numbers of them. They are, there's, there's a horde of them, an army, a legion. And what your fighter is doing is holding them at bay, not really being concerned with how many individual orcs in the swarm they're, they're destroying. And so what I say is that as your fighter is battling in this sort of pinch point or, you know, on a, maybe a castle wall or at a cave entrance, all they do is they make a successful attack to hold them there. And if he misses an attack, some of them get through. Maybe it's like 1d12 of them get through. Now, 1d12 is fun to use because it's a highly volatile dice. The difference between 1 and 12 is colossal. And that's going to make that 1d12 come through sort of roll to be very exciting. One orc is no big deal. 12 is a big freaking deal. And then you could run those orcs almost as you do a normal orc. And they continue whatever your sort of side encounter is while this swarm is pressing in. That's my only answer. I really do not have another way to to do a, a, an army encounter. And so let's think about Minas Tirith. We have some heroes and a small army trying to hold a city against a gigantic legion of enemies. And I would summarize all of that with some super cool descriptions, you know, talk about the siege engines and the trolls pulling the engines and all this stuff. And basically just do one big versus roll. And the versus roll counts down how much time can pass before Minas Tirith is destroyed. Each time that the Legion wins, Minas Tirith loses one point on this timer. And maybe there's eight points on it. So you can only lose this versus roll against the Legion eight times before Minas Tirith is in flames. You've, you've, you're no longer can hold and sort of you're Frodo's out of time, so to speak. <laughs> now it vastly simplifies the mechanical part, but that's fine because your descriptions are going to be so cool. And then also you give your players chances to mitigate these roles or modify these roles. So they aren't just making flat versus roles against the Legion. They can fortify the reinforcements. They can fire all the catapults in unison. They can, they can shower rubble down on the enemy to maybe give a plus or to roll with advantage on this versus role. But again, the idea isn't to get into the details of the Legion attacking. It's to get into the gravity of a single dice roll. That single dice roll needs excitement and gravity. If you're rolling tons of rolls, each one will lose gravity. Less rolls equals higher gravity because this outcome. If you succeed in one of these rolls, you buy in another entire round for players to mitigate the next roll or maybe to work on some kind of super weapon or to work on some big plan where they're going to unleash the um, the river like in the battle at Orthanc, right? And so my answer is always the same to the mailbag when it comes to fighting an army. It's really just a matter of holding a time at bay. I, I cannot deal with tracking, you know, hundreds of orcs or skeletons. <laughs> I just can't. So that's how that one is. So thank you, everybody who's been writing in about fighting armies. And it's just a, it really is a perennial question. It, it comes up in almost every campaign, I think, at some point. Because I think it's an important part of the fantasy epic mindset. It is a scene that needs to be in your story. And so you need to be ready to handle it with elegance and excitement. Okay. And we've got one more piece um, from the mailbag. And this one's kind of funny. Uh, it, it came up a few times last year and then it kind of went quiet and then suddenly popped back up. 
in, uh, in February and early March, which is requests for an index card RPG monster manual. Like, where's my dang monster manual? Um, so I just wanted to go ahead and address it here in the podcast because I know the podcast gets to hundreds of you. Um, and I'm sure that a lot of those uh, questions are coming from you guys. First of all, I, there kind of is an index card RPG monster manual, especially after uh, publishing Magic. So between Worlds, Magic, and Core, uh, you have you know somewhere in the order of 50 or so monsters. And even to me, that's even too many, really, uh, for the mindset that I've been publishing toward. So already I feel I've, I've done a, a pretty wild monster manual. And even in some reviews online, Index Card RPG has been critiqued that the monsters are too mechanically complex, that a full page of data on a monster is too much to run efficiently. And so that's why we changed up our enemy listing in Altered State. Um, and then you, you even have the villains and the enemies in uh, Vigilante City. And like, there are a lot of Index Card RPG foes out there to utilize and to mine. And then you also have the tables in core, which help you build and modify basic enemies into sort of bosses or alpha types in, in, in different ways. So I'm not sure what's left undone here. Um, in my mind, there's so much information as far as monsters in index card RPG. I'm really not sure what to do that I haven't. Um, especially when you think about that really index card RPG is, is a mindset, not a set of content. And so it, all the monsters you have and all the other books that you own can be pulled right in with relative simplicity. And that was my mindset. So if I'm responding in uh, the mailbag to folks who are asking for an index card RPG monster manual by saying, nah, <laughs> Don't take it as a, a flippant answer or that I don't want to do the work or that this isn't an exciting idea. It's that in my mind, I really have done it and I really have set out to do a tighter and, and more condensed version of index card RPG, not an ever expanding one. The ever expanding mindset is exciting in RPGs. You know, it makes for great collecting. It's a fun, like what's next kind of feeling, you know, and this is how Wizards of the Coast and many other publishers do their constant expansion of their world. Um, you know, another example would be like how Shadowrun is done. You know, almost every month they have a new source book with a ton of new stuff in it. And uh, who can even keep up with this much content? I'm not sure, but it does add to some fun collecting elements. But that's just not the strategy of Index Card RPG. And so I don't mean to just say nope to the Index Card RPG Monster Manual, but I kind of do mean to say that. I'm, I feel satisfied with what has been done as far as monsters. And I think it will be refined. Uh, it will be improved and condensed like the ones in Altered State. Um, but I wouldn't expect to see a bunch more mon monster content. If anything, I would just ex look to see third edition coming at some point, And in that, a more efficient and easier to memorize, not look up set of monsters. And in the meantime, go mine every single RPG book you have for monsters. There's a lot of fun ones. Um, even books like Cryptids that I did with Eric Bloat. I, I really like the monsters in that. They're a little bit earth-based, you know, but they can easily be modded a little bit to fit into a fantasy game in interesting and sort of unexpected ways that aren't like your traditional fantasy monsters. So there's, there's just wealths and reams of data about monsters out there to, to dig through. And, and if you look at some of the Kickstarter monster books, my goodness, they're gigantic. Some of them have like 400 monsters in them. And so I'm just like, 
I'm monstered out. <laughs> so I like to keep it simple. I really like to stick to the 5e monster manual. I don't know why. Call me, call me a simpleton. <laughs> but I really enjoy that monster book, and I like the familiarity it has, the classic nature that it has. And so that's where you'll find me if you're looking for me um, as far as monsters go. Hey, that's it. Look. The mailbag's empty. Kick it. Mailbag day, mailbag day. Hey, 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 it's mailbag day. Let's go see what's in the mail today, because it's a mailbag day. All right, so that is the mailbag for Mainframe 62. Let's get into the real guts of this. I'm going to sip on my coffee a little bit here. Mm. Delicious. Okay, so Mainframe 62, what's it really about, Hankering? We've, we've heard enough of the mailbag. Come on, let's move into the real guts here. Let's get into the thesis. And here's what's funny. The thesis today on Mainframe 62 comes directly from a piece of mail. So um, thank you, everybody, on the Runehammer Discord, which, by the way, is open to all now, open to all patrons, which it does introduce a little bit of clutter into the Discord channel. So I want to thank all the immortals who have been enjoying that channel in a, in a little bit quieter feel until a few days ago when we opened it up to all patrons. And I did that because I know that online tools are more important to people right now because of modern times. And, and I want to thank the immortals for their patience as all these new users, we've had over a hundred new users in the discord channel who, you know, maybe cluttering it up a little bit in their first few days, but now are sort of settling more into their routines. And so we're not going to be reading through so much stuff that maybe we aren't following. And so we'll, you'll find our ways into our little channels and our little hidey holes in the discord channel and uh, everything's starting to normalize again. So thank you everybody for getting in and joining the conversation, by the way, it's just, there's always something new to talk about in there, but this comes directly from the, um, the RPG mainframe discussion channel. And it was a question about how do you sort of build investment in players sort of in the whole thing. And I think, I think the initial question was a little more focused than this. It was like, how do you build investment in character backstory? But I see this as a, a, a question that cloaks a, a larger issue, which is just building investment itself, investment with a capital I, how do you build player investment in your game? And I don't think the answers are going to be maybe what you expect. So first, I want to look at it by what the answer isn't to me. And, and I think that this is actually a reflection on sort of the state of our hobby right now. I don't think that the answer to how do I get players to really invest in my game, to, to care, to want to show up with their full energy, you know, how do I build this in them? I think that the running answer from the publisher side is to shower players with goodies and options and shopping lists and, you know, sort of like looking through a Toys R Us catalog for their characters. I, I don't think that's the way to do it. And, and I think that's because that's playing to a smaller part of the brain than I want to play to. That, that sort of lizard brain that wants things and that wants toys is a sort of ravenous and is almost impossible to satisfy. And B to me is a, a, a somewhat shallow part of the brain. That's not uh, the, the deeper area that I want to get into as a game master. And so that's not the answer to me. Now at some tables, that is just an endless fascination of players browsing potential loot that they could get or that they want to go after or, um, you know, power builds that they could achieve in the future. And so if that is how you game then Hey, rock on. I'm just saying for me, that's not the answer to this question. So for me to answer this question, I have six points that I want to, that I want to hit. 
All right, you guys know me. I'm always trying to work like the thesis mindset. So my thesis is you build greater investment at your table through meta thinking. It really is a meta game to build investment. It is not an in-game element. It's something that happens at a meta level. Investment is something that a player feels, not a character. Characters are completely invested in the world. They live in it. But a player is someone who might at times lose interest or be a little less excited for a session or put a little less effort into the character creation as maybe another player does or be a little less animated during a session. You know, this, this is the concept of investment. And I don't think it happens um, at the character level or inside the game. It's a meta problem. And that's my thesis. And the six points, I hope, are going to back this thesis up, okay? My first one is a technique called the BS session. <laughs> so this is basically BSing with your players. And this could this usually happens before a game really gets sort of gels and come together. And this is just bullshitting about what you enjoy about D&D. What about the hobby even brought you here? Why are we why are we getting together one night a week and being away from our families and being, you know, like adding one more item to our busy schedules and so on and so forth. Like, what is it you're wanting? And like, you know, why did you even get into this? This is weird. Why are you so weird, dude? You got this like giant beard and like, you know, what, what are those pants all about? Why, what are we doing? And like then beginning to, you know, maybe fun on each other a little bit and getting to know each other. If you already are good friends with these players, it's kind of just this, this chewing the fat, but you're not just chewing the fat. And here's where being the game master is a little bit different than maybe what the players are thinking. You're actually subtly steering this conversation. You're using this bullshit session, looking for little tidbits. But at the same time, you're also just funning, you're chuckling. You're also constantly reinforcing people that any level of nerddom is completely acceptable. So if someone just instantly starts to go into, well, I've always played gnomes in all my games, and so I want to play a gnome again, and this time here's how I'm going to build this gnome out, and then just look within and say, okay, what, do I, what can I say that's fun about reinforcing this whole gnome thing? And like the first thing that comes to my mind is like, it's because of gnomes we have this blasted economy. Damn them. <laughs> like, what is that? I have no idea. <laughs> Why did I turn right to a negative portrayal of gnomes? I don't know. But what matters is that I jump in. I jump into the BS. And this is also, you know, a principle in improv theater. It's, it's a, a principle of taking what's said and questioning nothing, but leaping in with your own voice. And this to me is a huge part of the BS session. This is not, you are not doing session zero. You're not creating characters. You're not doing anything. You're just joking around. And there's a little bit of a, of a D and D theme to your joking around. There's a bit of a, we're here and this is kind of what we're doing because we're weirdos and this is awesome. And you, my friend need to pass me those Doritos. You know, (laughs) this is, this is a good solid BS session. This is a perfect example to me of how meta this problem really is. This has nothing to do with how good your game is or how cool it is or how what rule system you're using. This is a completely meta behavior. This is being a beacon. This is being a social leader. This is being someone who creates a welcoming space and is ultra friendly and energetic. This is part of being a good game master and you got to do it. And it takes a little bit of smarts. If you're a bit 
weird and antisocial and maybe even shy or maybe even counter social, this is going to be near impossible to execute. And I do hear plenty of horror stories about, you know, uh, uh, games where the, the game master is sort of in a way antisocial. It's not going to work. There's going to be no investment. Now, you might get through a game session. Okay, hey, thanks for running that. Uh, you know, we're out of here. But remember what our thesis is here. This is about building investment, not just getting through running a game. Okay, so you've run a great BS session. You guys are, you know, kind of getting to know each other and like uh, everybody's feeling comfy and feeling like, oh boy, this is going to be a hoot, you know, because nothing's off limits. Sometimes it can be funny. Sometimes there can even be tears flowing. Sometimes, you know, there can be too many modern references, but sometimes it can be really authentic and it is whatever. Everybody feels safe, okay? Now, the next one is far more practical. The BS session, wow, that's vague and that's a big spaghetti of social interactions and you're going to have to navigate it in your own way. But this next one is super specific. I like to go from that top down to that bottom. You've probably noticed my habits with that. The next one is embracing mentions. Now, mentions are something that I like M-E-N-T-I-O-N-S. Okay, mentions are when players just sort of mumble a little something, something, and your job as a game master is to notice the little something, somethings to, to harvest them and embrace them. Now, a lot of, you know, this sort of funny joke that goes with a game master of like a player will say, Oh, well, I bet there's a, a beholder around the corner up here. And everybody will be like, dude, shut up. Don't give the dungeon master ideas. Are you crazy? Don't mention a beholder. What are you nuts? To me, the great game master is always listening for ideas that they can take and make it seem like we're always the truth. They can take the suggestions, the accidental suggestions of players, which I'm calling mentions, and embrace them. A lot of times, mentions take the form of player data. A lot of times, mentions take the form of potential disasters or calamities that could befall the players. They take a lot of different forms, but I think embracing them is another reason that you don't want your game on paper so much in front of you that you're distracted from hearing player ideas. I've seen too many game masters in my day with all these notes and index cards and a big screen that they're hiding behind, and they're just not hearing the ideas and mentions and suggestions of players to just create and modify what's happening in the, in the image of the players and their imagination of what's coming. The game master is so fixated on the careful preparation of the game that they are missing what's being mentioned and modifying the game. And that modification to me is not necessarily the best way to play, but remember our thesis here. It's a thing that builds investment. If the player feels like their mentions and their accidental vision of the world is actually either lining up with or morphing the world in their image, it gives them more reasons to be at that table. It gives them more reasons to control what they're saying, whether it's in the favor of mentioning more or of mentioning less because they're afraid <laughs> that things they say will come to bite them. But either way, their investment builds because they know that what they say matters and finds its way into the game. This is the, the diametric opposite to some kind of, you know, game master conjured puzzle where you need to put the right colored stones into the sockets to open the door. There's really nothing to mention there. There's, it's very fixed and it feels like the, the dungeon master is like waiting. 
He's waiting on the group to figure it out. And that, that's, that's one of the worst situations you can get in, I think. So embracing the mentions and the accidental suggestions of players is my second point. My third one is like what is what I like to call the constant recap. In the constant recap, you are endlessly, really almost on every single turn in the game, not every round, every single turn, you are recapping what's happening. You are recapping. So if, if your sorcerer is using wild magic and casts fireball and it goes awry and slams into the wall and blows open an opening and reveals a hidden chamber, you recap all that action right after their turn. So you say, wow, Zero just blew a hole in the wall on accident with this wild fire magic spell. What are you going to do? You see that? And you, it just happened. It literally happened like five seconds ago, and you're recapping it already, but with slightly different wording and maybe in a little bit more summarized form. And you are constantly doing this, constantly. Every single turn, you're recapping, wrapping up, and redescribing what a player is doing or what the players are doing or what the bad guys are doing, or what's happening in the environment, anything, but you are constantly recapping. Not just the beginning of the session, not just the end of the session, every single turn, you are not only moving around the table, making sure that everyone has their moment. You are also giving them ultra clear context on what's going on in that few seconds or that few minutes of time at the table. And if you guys are playing more in like a stronghold mindset, because you're sort of in meta time, you're, you're working in weeks or months in your game world because they're building this castle or something, then the burden on you to do the constant recap is even higher because lots of blocks of time are moving and you need to constantly recap and re-energize and reinforce the tone of what needs to happen next. The gravity of the next player's decisions, you need to constantly push them. And if you're entering into sort of binary conditions, you're also recapping that. So you can say, now that this doorway is open to this next chamber, you definitely have the possibility of going in there. But if you go in there, you're going to abandon your friends who are fighting the dark mantles. Now, the dark mantles seem to be, you're, you're definitely getting the, the sway on them in the battle. But if you walk through the portal or through, you know, the newly opened door, you might leave your friends to their doom. Like, what are you going to do? You see, you're, you're constantly reframing what's happening. Or looking at it by moving your sort of mental camera around the room. Constantly reinforcing characters and players with context on the details of what just happened. And to throw in just a little bit, you can add some heroic or more epic tidbits to that. So let's go back to our case of this wild sorcerer. So instead of just saying, Zero just sort of lost control of a fire spell and blew a hole in the wall, revealing a room next to you, what are you going to do? You can say, Zero was trying to cast fireball at these dark mantles, but you saw the fire like overcome him. He conjured far too much pyroclastic energy and it spiraled across the room like blowing these bricks apart. Now there's an opening in the far wall and you can see something dark beyond there. What are you going to do? You see, it's the exact same thing. It takes about the same amount of time, but you just dive a little further and you make this sorcerer sound cool. You reinforce that sorcerer by making it sound awesome. Now, if your players are already giving super vivid descriptions, hey, rock on. But you're always there to reinforce and recap every single turn. Get it done. Now, the next one is a, a personal habit of mine, which I am absolutely horrible with because I love doing it so much. But I'm going to throw it in here as a recommendation on how to build character investment, player investment uh, in your game. I am so bad with this. 
And by bad, I mean awesome. <laughs> it is character nicknames, not player nicknames, character nicknames. That's our first one. Actually, my fifth point, I just looked down at my notebook, is player nicknames. So let's just lump them together and call it nicknames. Nicknames are basically a way to pull people closer to you in life, in my opinion. It's a way to say, not only do I remember who you are, I remember things you do and I remember things about you. And you know what? I've got a new little title for you. You are now Zero the Madman. You are now Zero the, 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 the Redeemer. <laughs> you are now Zero the, the Wizard of Mugberg. None of these things are germane or salient to anything happening. <laughs> but like uh, one of my players is named Kirby. And every week that we get together, I've got some goofy new thing that I'm calling him. I'm calling Turbo Kerbo and stuff like that. I'm calling him, you know, Kerbus Maximus and stuff like this. These are nicknames. Nicknames to me reinforce you're in a secret club, dude. You're in a secret club, and here's your secret name that only we know around here. It's just like the Fremen, right? Your name is going to be Muad'Dib, but your Fremen name is going to be Usul, which means the strength at the base of the pillar. Oh, hell yeah, man. That Usul. And so everybody who's in the secret club calls you Usul, but everybody outside has to call you Muad'Dib. That's cool. That makes you feel included. That makes you want to show up. And then as a further extension, you do this on their characters too. So you always, it's just like with, um, with Bilbo, right? He's barrel rider. He's the spider killer. He's the, he's got all these sort of little side names. And as the action unfolds, each time you're calling, cause remember you always call on a player by their character name, not their player name. You say, you know, zero, what are you going to do? And that brings us back to Uni's turn, right? Uni, the stone smasher, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> The hero of Mugberg, you know, man of madness, the hideous one. You know, you just kind of make up these titles constantly and go, go, go with them. Don't write them down. Don't make it a chore for yourself. Don't force it. Just get in a natural habit of being free and loose, always reminding players what their characters' names are and always slightly modifying those names to reflect what's been happening, almost as a way of sort of funning on them. It's not quite mocking. You don't want to mock them, but you want to fun them. You want to play with it. This to me pulls the player back to the table every single time with a little bit of a, yeah, that's me. Yeah, that's me. I did that. Yeah, that is me. That is my character. And if you do that again and again and again and again, there is an emotional response there, which for lack of a cooler word to me is investment. Nicknames. My final one is the reminder and the clarification of choice. Choice is a really big and important part of the RPG hobby because it's uh, really the one thing that a, tr that a tabletop RPG can do that almost no other form of game can do, which is true choice. You actually can choose the path and the nature of what's going to happen and alter the course of it through player choices or through game master choices. As a way to build investment with your players, you constantly remind them of these choices and, and bring these choices out into a bright white light. And you do it just in the most simple and, and concise way imaginable. You just say like, so you guys are standing on this beach and you really have two choices here. I mean, I'm just 
putting it as plainly as I can, right? You can kind of, you know, go out into the ocean and hope that you meet up with the Atlanteans who are somewhere beneath the waves, or you can turn back and take your chances in the caverns. Now, this may make it seem like you're playing, you know, Dragon Slayer, or Dragon's Lair, sorry, on the old arcade game, you know, like if you want A or, you know, press A for the caves and B for the ocean. But that's okay. That's okay because when you reinforce this choice, where you put the interestingness is not how many choices there are, but the gravity upon a simpler choice. And if you guys watch my uh, Mario building or world building Mario style video that I recently put out, it's it's all about this. It's about these simple but heavy choices. And with your descriptions, you're constantly driving, revealing, reinforcing, and over-illuminating these choices. You're saying, you know, you guys basically could stay in town and fight this wave of orcs that are coming in, or you could take the wizard's advice and go to try to find the relic that maybe could end the war altogether. But if you leave town, that's not going to be good. But if you ignore the wizard and fight the orcs now, you might get, not get another chance to go after the relic. Well, how far is the relic? How close is the army? And do we have support? Do we have a local militia? Do we actually know where the relic is? Do we do we know if there's going to be traps? And like suddenly, there's a bunch of questions, and all these questions in this discussion is the more important part to me. Rather than saying, "Okay, you guys, here are the variables. What are you going to do? You could do almost anything. What should, what's it going to be?" To me, that's not really a choice. That puts so much burden on the players. I think it reduces investment because it kind of feels like this game master is wanting us to come up with the campaign right now. But if you re-illuminate and almost over-exaggerate and reinforce these choices so that the stakes are clear on these choices, then the players get to take over and they need to discuss their motivations, how they're going to make the choice. And you get to lean back and take a sip from your mug as a game master. So that's my final piece of advice on building investment is like shedding this brilliant white light onto the choices. And that's a great way of thinking of it to me because it just makes it stark. It it gets rid of all the BS and says, okay, you guys, I just got to admit it. There's really only two things you can do here. There's this or there's this. Now they can come up with all kinds of versions of how they want to do one of those choices, but you keep the number of choices clean and starkly illuminated so that they have this clear set of context and stakes on what they're choosing. And that's where role-playing is going to hit so hard, at least in the groups that I've been in. That's a moment where role-playing is just like in effect. So there you go. That is my answer on the six best ideas I have to build player investment in your game. And this is from the beginning through all the way to the end of a campaign. You've got the BS session, very important, but takes a sort of a a little bit of savvy sense of social interplay between people to really navigate it to effect. Then you've got embracing mentions. You're constantly listening for things that players mention and mining it for ideas to go into the action. Next, we've got the constant recap, one of the hardest things to really adopt in your game. But every single turn, you are in brief form recapping what just happened to give the next player context and stakes on their actions. Then we've got character nicknames and player nicknames for uh, the fourth and fifth points here, which is constantly reinforcing players' involvement and importance to you as a person by playing around with their name and giving them new titles and new variations on their name as a reinforcement of like, I know you and I like you and I enjoy being around you. And here's a little bit of a a giggle for you. 
And then finally, the reminders of choice, bringing choices into a bright white light and making them extremely clear to players so that they feel their, their thoughts and opinions really matter in that moment of choice. That's it, you guys, from Mainframe 62. I hope some of these techniques help you build the investment that your players feel around your table. Um, and if everybody's, you know, uh, moving to playing online these days, which really you probably should, um, you know, good luck and enjoy. And remember to keep those tools simple. Don't let the tools get between you and your group. If you, if you have a good group, you don't need a lot of fancy particle effects and animated trees swaying on your, your computer screen to have a great time with your friends. So embrace simplicity when playing online. And by all means, make sure to stay in touch with your friends, your players, your game master. These are, these are tough times for everybody, and it's important that we all double down on showing love, you know what I mean? Showing love to each other and sticking together, and uh, it, it's tough being apart like this. I got to admit, I underestimated how hard this would really be. I really just miss everyone in my community that I interact with on the daily, but we got to do what we got to do, so put in that extra effort to make sure that, that you're still outputting the same number of love beams as you normally would in daily life, okay? Get it done. We're going to stick together. We're going to make the world just a tiny bit more better place than it was when we got here, and uh, everybody, stay home, stay calm, stay safe, stay healthy, and most of all, strength. Honor and beer, man, are those things important in times like these. So stick to the old principles. When we are together, the shield wall is unbreakable. So let's stick together. Shoot them love beams. I'll see you guys on the internet. I'm going to get out of here. 